Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. You know, we didn't let that shoe drop until it had to. We did everything that we could to keep them in the trial as long as we could, because we knew that that judgment day was coming in terms of there will be a moment where you will stand in front of that jury and you're going to say something that is completely opposite of what the other person sitting at your table is. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. Uh, This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne is surrounded by... Uh, samurai, uh, Yvonne, Kabuki Theater. I'm not sure what that is uh, in, in your new digs. Um, yeah, I'm at my parents' house. Thanks for calling me out, Steve. Although I have to say I don't want to <laughs> leave. I'm getting treated very well here. Um, but yeah, so it's that my surroundings are a little more sophisticated than usual. Just trying to keep it punchy. Well, it definitely gives us some entertainment to look at. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and and I, I thought I would uh, I'd give a shout out to one of our former guests, uh, Yvonne. William Resigliano uh, sent a, a great batch of cookies to uh, to the office to thank us. And so so no pressure on our on our guests today, but uh, mm-hmm. but uh, sent some very very nice cookies. And I would love to share those with you if you weren't so far away. Yeah, yeah, I heard about the cookies. I'm sure they were delicious. Um, thanks, 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 William. <laughs> <laughs> I've been told it's too dangerous right. to <laughs> now at this uh, at this time and day and age. All right, so we won't we that's won't expect right, right, we won't expect right. cookies from today's guests. <laughs> yeah, so what you're doing is is saving us. You're saying right? I'll, I'll send you a picture of some cookies. How's that? I just, I, it, <laughs> right, right. I, I've got, I've got exactly. your safety at, at heart. <laughs> right, right, right. All right. Well, let me go ahead and introduce our guest today. Um, so uh, uh, our guests today are, are Kyle Farah and Wes Ball, uh, who are both partners in the law firm of Castor, Lynch, Farah, and Ball. And, uh, and you can look them up at either fbtrial.com or thetirelawyer.com. Kyle and Wes, how are you guys doing today? Good, good. Good. We always um, Well, other. great. Well, we are so happy... <laughs> that's all right. Sometimes it happens here. We uh, that's why we've got our fantastic uh, production. He gets it all figured out in the uh, in in production. I in, think. In, in post, Steve. <laughs> Fix yes, it in post. That's right. I don't even know how to say it. <laughs> <laughs> You're in the biz now. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I got to sound like I know what I'm talking mm-hmm, about. Mm-hmm. Let me go ahead and introduce uh, introduce uh, uh, or give some background. Um, so so everybody knows who we're talking about. But uh, Kyle. Uh, both Kyle and Wes uh, focus primarily on auto defect law and tire failures or tire cases, uh, and they both tried a number of cases uh, nationwide. Um, Kyle uh, speaks nationally about product liability law and other issues, in, including uh, about tires. Both of them have been named uh, Texas Rising Stars from 2009 to 2014. Both of them have been super lawyers from 2014 to 2020. Uh, Kyle is, a, is, is recently inducted into the American Board of Trial Advocates and is on the executive board of the Attorneys Information Exchange Group. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thanks. Appreciate it. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. And your partner, Wes Ball, is a, uh, a graduated undergrad from University of Tennessee and then from Baylor Law, also does auto defect and tire cases and has tried cases uh, all over the country, also has been named as a rising star and super lawyer 
And I've been named in 40 under 40 uh, by the National Trial Lawyers, is also in the executive board of AIEG, and, uh, and has been on CNN, MSNBC, Bloomberg, Houston Chronicle, and several others. And, uh, and then what I, one thing I found interesting, Wes, is you and your firm uh, have been representing the parents of the um, kids that were murdered at Sandy Hook. Um, so that's got to be, I'm sure, uh, um, uh, very rewarding, but at the same time, very uh, frustrating with some of the folks you have to deal with. Uh, yeah, yeah, you, you, you've said it very well there. Uh, but I can tell you, I think the, the frustration is also very rewarding because um, watching those guys get as upset as they've been and their lawyers and as frustrated as they are uh, has been quite the reward to us in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. That is, it's probably just my um, nightmare, well, just good, like very... awkward moments all the time. <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, it's not. Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm saying no. I mean, it, it's amazing what's been said and 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 the positions that people have taken in that. Um, it's I can tell you this kind of a, a, a it's a very different sort of practice than what Kyle and I have forged in our practice uh, thus far. But it's been incredibly enjoyable and uh, very rewarding because. Anytime we can help the families like we're doing, and Mark Bankston, one of uh, the partners in our law firm, is really um, spearheading that whole effort as it is. Um, anytime we can, anytime we can put that much good or give that much good back, it's very, very, very awesome from our standpoint. So we've really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would think anytime you can almost make Alex Jones's head explode must feel good too. Yeah, I mean, we've still got another couple cracks at him for deposition. So uh, who knows? Maybe we'll actually get it to explode. I'm sure that there's that there's a, a trigger where it'll it will explode at some point. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, um, well, uh, guys, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Let's talk about. Uh, I'm I'm sorry, Kyle. What was that? Oh no, no big deal. I I feel like um my audio is a little bit delayed. But I said he. Alex Jones made a voodoo doll of our partner, Mark Banks, and tried to sell it on his show. I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> That's oh, that awesome. A, I hope you bought one. Yeah, I, I can tell you this. About it. At, give him- at, at some point, that case, um, uh, you know, if, if this goes well and, and we don't make complete fools or asses of ourselves, that case is something that I would think would be very, very fun um, to come back and talk about. I mean, it's already... Uh, it's already a case that could be talked about just in its infancy with all the discovery matters and depositions that we've taken and things that have been said and things that have been done. And we're still probably a year away from trial at best on it. Um, but, but when that one's done, I think it will be endless amounts of fun to talk about again. Yeah, absolutely. I could, I could definitely see that. Yeah. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Let's talk about uh, the case that you're here to talk about, which was called uh, Shanika and A.B. A. Brown versus Sylvie Concrete, Concrete Products, Inc. Uh, it was tried back in 2018, uh, involved a crash from July of 2015, and resulted in a verdict on behalf of Shaniqua Brown, Shanika Brown versus Sylvie Concrete Products for $10.6 million. 
we'll talk about this as we go on, but there were a number of other defendants involved in the case, uh, in addition to Sylvie uh, Concrete Products, including a company called McCarthy Tire Company, uh, also Bridgestone, and then another company called Bridge, Bridgestone Bandag, uh, all involved in it. And I think there were uh, multiple settlements uh, reached uh, before the final verdict, but the actual case that, that ended in a verdict in uh, 2018 was just on behalf of Shanika and, and not her uh, her infant daughter, and then against Sylvie Concrete Products, and that was for $10.6 million. Um, so the basic overview of the case, and guys, you can correct me where I get it wrong, but um, my understanding is that uh, Shanika's mother, uh, Pamela, was driving a Saturn relay on uh, I-295 North in West Deptford Township, New Jersey. Uh, she was in the right lane, and um, as she was driving, she encountered a 14-foot piece of, uh, of tire that was in the middle of the lane and uh, tried to avoid that. Uh, and in, while avoiding it, uh, the vehicle um, uh, rolled over, and both uh, Shanika and her uh, infant daughter were partially ejected, I think, uh, which resulted in Shanika... Uh, uh, losing her arm, uh, having her arm uh, severed, and have and AB's uh, leg severed. Uh, and from what I understand from the injuries, is that Shanika's arm was initially um, reattached, but then had to be um, uh, amputated below the elbow, and then eventually above the elbow. And then hopefully she was getting uh, some prosthetic for that. But so it sounded like she just went through. Uh, a nightmare of treatment after having this nightmare of a case. Uh, and the so the tire uh, that had been left there had been left there by Sylvie Concrete Products off of one of their concrete trucks that had uh, a tread separation on a retread tire uh, that had been put together by uh, McCarthy Tire Company. And, um, and essentially the case uh, involved claims of uh, uh, defective tire, of defective retreading, of defective maintenance, and defective inspection. And then uh, a big point in the case seemed to me was that uh, that uh, after Sylvie knew that their tire uh, tread had come off into the roadway, uh, delayed for almost 20 minutes or maybe even more, uh, calling 911 to let anybody know about it. So there was actually, from what I can understand, it sounded like there was actually a number of collisions. Is that is that accurate? It is. Yeah. There, we had uh, identified known collisions, had identified four known collisions um, before uh, the clients we represented came upon the tire. Uh, we were able to track down uh, three of those individuals uh, and then our client came upon it. Um, but all three of those, Sylvie was, Sylvie, not only the driver, um, but also uh, management of Sylvie was aware of each of those individual accidents that had been caused. None, obviously, as great or as significant as the accident um, that our clients were involved in, but nonetheless, um, bunch of, a bunch of separate accidents that were caused before ours was. One thing I wanted to ask is in your opening, Wes, you uh, played a, a telephone call from the Sylvie Concrete Management but we couldn't see what the telephone call said, but it sounded like it was uh, pretty explicit and, and it obviously showed that they knew what was going on. 
Yeah. Um, you know, if, if, if you think, I, I tell you what, I've got it on my computer right here. Odd enough, this is the same computer. I could play it real quick um, because it is a pretty, a pretty, a pretty catchy, um, very visceral phone call. Uh, would you like me to do that? I, I don't know if it, it would work. Yeah, I don't know if it will either. Let me see. I mean, it, 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 we're in we're in a situation where maybe he can edit this out if it doesn't, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, let me see if it let me see if it works before you can. It does. Go ahead. Wes, before you play it, you got to have a little setup. Yeah. So th yeah. this okay. guy who's on the on. The well, I'll well, do it now while you're looking. Go ahead. The, the guy, the guy on the audio tape is the salesman who was driving for Sylvie, who was driving behind the truck. Uh, he testified, as did somebody else at the company, that had anybody at Sylvie known this tread was in the roadway, they would have immediately called 911. So their position was, we didn't know the tread was in the roadway. The driver crested over a hill before he stopped, and he just didn't appreciate that this tread was sitting in the road and people were hitting it and running it over. Um, after his deposition, he said that, we got this video, or I'm sorry, audio tape, where this salesman called in to talk to his manager. So that's kind of the background setup to what this is, because the truth is clearly far different than what this man testified to. So I've got it here. Let me see if this actually works. I don't know. You know the rule. You got in just in time. You don't want this call. You know, pass me your boss. No, Ma, he's on the phone, so want to call back? Are right, you ready? No, I'm on. 295 going north. I was behind a Penn Jersey truck. It's gone the last five minutes. Penn Jersey truck. I thought he blew a tire. The whole the whole tire came off. He ran over it. I almost hit it. My fucking Penn Jersey truck. Unbelievable. No, no, it wasn't Penn Jersey. About 100 feet up the road, Silver Concrete's pulled over. 118. Broke down? Tires off the fucking rim. So what, was there something in the road? No, nah, it just fucking blew a tire. Cause is it hot out or something? I know less than this fucking driver knows. But the rims on the ground. There's a car behind him with uh, fucked the car up, like damaged the whole front of the car, side of the car. So. <laughs> I don't even, this driver doesn't know me and I don't know who he is. Did you call it in yet? Did you call it in? Did you call? Who'd you talk to? You want to get Chris on the phone with us? Yeah, hold on. Never allow de-icing salts to come in contact with concrete less than two years old. Order 4,000 PSI air and trained concrete. Okay. Zach, there's Chris. Chris. Yeah. I was driving, I wasn't behind 118, I was mm -hmm. behind the Penn Jersey truck. Okay. I'm here now, you're going to have to come out, or one of you guys have to come out. Why, what's going on? I, I, heard, he had a, I heard he had a flat tire. Yeah, but it's, it's the rims on the ground, half three quarters of the tires out the roadway, because it was behind him. It okay. fucked the front of his car up, went down the side, fucked the side of his car up. Oh, some, some other, there was, an, there was another car that got an accident also? Nah, the car drove over his tire when it blew. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Oh, I've got somebody out there right now. Got more, yeah, you got more damage to the Honda than the Honda's worth. Okay. All right, let me get somebody out there. All right, thanks. See you.
Kristen, you still there? Yeah. Okay, no, that's what I was calling. Yeah, so that so that was the uh, that's basically what we not basically that's what we opened the trial up with, and uh, and that tells you kind of generally what the concrete company Sylvie was doing at that time. So they're aware of at least two other accidents. One of them sitting there at that moment. Uh, yet we proved through uh, cross examination that at no point did anyone ever make any attempt whatsoever to call nine one one. Uh, police, fire, anyone, nothing, zero. Uh, no one ever made an attempt to retrieve the tread from the roadway. Uh, and in addition to that, that because they didn't do any of that, we proved on cross-examination that uh, the Sylvie driver, the dispatcher, and the manager that you heard from, Chris Pruden, all of them violated Sylvie's internal policy of any time an accident's happened, immediately call 911 uh, before anything else is done. Right, and one thing I was wondering, so did the truck driver, he, he stopped and pulled over to the side of the road and, and he, did he just stay there or did he continue going? He stayed there. He, he, he pulled over on the side of the road because okay. he couldn't go really anywhere else. He was, he was down a tire on a full, it, his, it, by the way, his concrete truck was fully loaded. Um, so he really couldn't go anywhere without a tire change. So he just pulled over to the side of the road and uh, put out some cones at the very back of his truck. So no one run in the back of it, but sat there and just watched that big piece of tread that weighed probably 300 pounds uh, sit in the middle of the road and everybody dodge it like it was a bad game of Frogger. And, and what was his explanation for not calling 911? Um, Kyle, I can't remember. Go ahead. So he didn't have much of an explanation. He said, "Look, I called, I called the the, I called the shop, I called my manager, and expected them to do whatever they wanted to do." But what was interesting, I think, about kind of the whole theory is we hired this retired um, New Jersey policeman named Matiscus. He has a name that I could never pronounce. He did an analysis of all the phone calls and every single uh, trooper that was out that day and where they were at the exact right times. To prove that had they just called 911, police would have easily been there before our clients got to that tire and could have set up a barricade and directed people around it. Uh, Sylvie's defense to that was well, some other people called 911 eventually. The, the people that the other people that hit the tire eventually called 911, but it was like a 10 or 15 minute gap, and that difference made the difference between our client coming into the tire or not. That answered my question. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> why did it matter? <laughs> well, no, no, not why did it, not, not why did it matter, but that, yeah, that it was, because uh, I think something like that matters regardless and certainly gets a jury pissed off, but that, that it actually, that uh, that call and that whole conversation happened before your clients hit the tire piece, hit the tread piece. Well, yeah. let, let me, let me throw in a little, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you, Kyle. I was going to tell yeah. the story of, uh, of, um, the gentleman who was on the phone call. So without really revealing names, his name's Chris. You can hear him on the audio. What's really interesting and what played out really poorly for Sylvie at trial was the fact that the gentleman that you hear come on the call, the manager who this gets reported to, the dispatch calls and it gets reported to, that gentleman got a very severe case of amnesia uh, as it concerns this accident, this call, and specifically his phone in general. 
So, you know, you said it was pretty interesting that this is what Sylvie knew. Well, we found out that Sylvie knew all of this, but once we found out Sylvie knew all of it and we got this and we got this 911 call, we asked for all of their phone records and their text messages and things like that. And lo and behold, the gentleman, the manager who came on, um, Chris, he had destroyed his phone about a month after we had requested all of these records. And 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 within and and, and certainly within the time that they were supposed to keep all of these records. Um, so we, so he didn't have his phone. It had been destroyed. And when I said he got a very uh, big case of or very, very severe case of amnesia, he specifically stated that he never remembered uh, having this phone call with anyone. But then went back um, after he said he never heard or never remembered having this phone call with anyone. Then went back and decided that he did remember having this phone call and remembered specific parts about the phone call um, and. The short end of this is we, we, we had a motion to compel to to uh, to have them produce him for a second time, because in his first deposition, we found out that he had a phone. We asked for the phone. We found out that the phone was then destroyed after his first deposition. So the judge ordered his deposition to move forward a second time based on all the evidence spoilation issues. And that's when he then decided that he had that he did remember the call because in his first deposition, he had he didn't remember anything about this call. And then we get the call. We ask for the phone and all the good stuff. He doesn't have it. And then we sit down with him a second time and he does remember it. So it was a very, very uh, um, uh, interesting cross, to say the least, uh, at the time of trial uh, with him telling the jury that he just didn't even remember having a phone call. Uh, where he found out within minutes thereafter that a six month old baby had lost its leg and a mother had lost her arm. Mm. Kind of hard to believe that you could just forget that. Uh, Yvonne, tell our listeners what kind of lawyers we are. <laughs> oh man, we are, well, we're plaintiff's lawyers. We're trial. Yeah, we are plaintiff's lawyers, and plaintiff's lawyers only get paid when what happens? When you get a good outcome for your client, either settlement or trial. That's right. When you close the case, as uh, as our friend Alec Baldwin says, always be closing. That's when you get paid. <laughs> and the best thing that can help you get paid is a good case management system. And so we are talking about CasePacer.com. That's CasePacer.com. It is a case management system that is cloud-based, designed by personal injury lawyers for personal injury law firms. Yeah, and Steve, one of the things that's really cool about it is that it's case-based pricing instead of the number of users. So the expense makes sense for the size of case and the complexity of the case that you have, but as many people as you need to can use it. Right, so if you're doing something like a mass tort litigation where you might have lawyers from all over the country helping out on it, all of them can access CasePacer without increasing the price of using it. It helps you move your cases forward. They have secure, anywhere, anytime access. And then what I thought was really cool is this discovery app that they have on their system. Yeah, for our lawyer listeners, you and your staff spend a lot of time dealing with your clients, getting information from them, getting documents from them. And Case Pacer has this app that will actually help you with intake and with getting documents from potential and current clients. 
Yeah, so it makes it really easy to handle, uh, especially a large number of cases. And it's cloud-based. I hear people say that all the time. I don't really know what it means. It just means that it's uh, some sort of uh, magic is going on out there, but it's based in the cloud. Cloud-based is good. You can get online or you can use the app to access your case management info from anytime, anywhere. We encourage our listeners to check out CasePacer.com. You can also call them at 317-218-4715. That's CasePacer.com. And tell them that we sent you because this podcast runs on caffeine and help from our sponsors. Yvonne, I don't know if we've ever really talked about this on the show before, uh, but but you know, so in this case, you actually got uh, a spoliation sanction against them and an adverse inference because they destroyed this cell phone, right? Uh, Kyle probably we did. Kyle probably remembers the details of that a lot better. We did, and it was kind of this really long, evolving process that was playing out through the middle of trial, where we were both sides were hiring experts to have the phone examined. Sylvie's position was we could still get all this old information off the phone. They couldn't because it, it wasn't that the phone is destroyed. He'd wiped it clean. I mean, he'd reset it to factory settings, which why in the world would you do that unless you had something incriminating on there? We, so there was a series of different experts that looked at it. And finally, the judge said, look, you, you, you're not pulling the information off. You clearly destroyed it. We had our expert come and testify, not in front of the jury, but outside the presence of the jury that it's gone. It's irretrievable. Here's the date it was done. We can tell that. Um, so the judge finally issues a sanction order. And we had a really, really intelligent, sharp judge that was cued in on all the, all the little nuances. So Wes had the idea of, look, we would be putting on the evidence of what was on that phone in our case in chief if we if, that, if we had the evidence. So waiting till the end of this case and just reading this instruction is not sufficient. We want the instruction read during our case in chief. So we argued and the judge and the court agreed. Um, then she asked when we'd like it. And it was on a Friday. And I was like, you know, I think Friday afternoon would be a, a good time right before the jury goes home for the weekend. And she laughed at me and said, I'm not going to do that. Right. But I'll definitely do it Friday around lunchtime because that it, it made sense in the sequence of the case where we're at that this would get read. But she definitely knew what I wanted, and she said that that's that's a little bit much. Uh, but she did read it in our case in chief, and then obviously again it was in the jury instructions, so she read it again. Yeah, and the only thing I would add to that is um, I'm actually going back through some of my notes and some of my PowerPoint openings since I pulled that call up. Um, Kyle, you Kyle, if you'll recall, um, the phone was wiped and then it was destroyed. Remember, it was beaten all to pieces. So yeah, it was yeah. wiped and then destroyed, which makes no sense. Why would you wipe a phone and then destroy it? Because you can't wipe it after you've now destroyed it. So it was all beaten up and it was wiped. So to go back to what I was saying a little earlier, to put it in a little more context with this and, and how important it was, the first deposition of this gentleman that I had, one thing that was a very large import in the case was, did Sylvie know that the tire was in the roadway. Did they have actual knowledge tires in the roadway? So before I take this guy's deposition, we do not have this 911 call. None of it. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous to think that they would not have known the tire was in the roadway. It weighs 300 pounds. 
and the driver's pulled over on the side of the road, so why wouldn't they know that it's in the roadway? But they kept denying. We had no idea that the tire was in the roadway. How could we have ever known to call 911 if we didn't even know it was in, in, in the roadway? So I take his deposition, and he specifically says in his deposition, no, I had no idea that the tire was in the roadway. No one had any idea the tire was in the roadway. So the, after he says that and he tells us he has a phone, but he doesn't know where that phone is and all that good stuff, then we get produced to us this 911 call. We, we, we subpoenaed it and, and got it. It's 911 call where this guy who I had just deposed gets on at the end of it and starts talking about, as you heard, Oh, Jesus, it's so terrible that this tire's in the middle of the roadway. Oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? So, of course, I'm listening to it going, holy shit, that's the exact opposite of what this guy just told me. And I don't have the phone. I don't have the phone records or anything. So that's when we went back to the judge. And the judge essentially looked at defense counsel and got very upset with defense counsel for trying to claim that this guy didn't remember what he was talking about when he was talking to me about it in the deposition. And for that reason, we shouldn't have to, we shouldn't be able to depose him again. Uh, he, the judge basically said he can go ask him any question he wants. So then I get back into the, I get back into the deposition with him. And that's when, when I put the 911 call in front of him and then give him his testimony from the first deposition, he, he all of a sudden now remembers everything. But then what he doesn't remember is everything that would have been on his phone, all of his text messages and things like that. And then we learn in that deposition that the way that anyone would have alerted him to things being on the roadway or problems with the vehicle before they left the uh, before they left the yard after they got their truck filled up with concrete, he, he would have been alerted to that information through text message. That they didn't really have many phone calls; rather, they had text message. So. When I go back and get his phone records, we identify four calls between the driver and this manager at the, at the, at the site where he's getting concrete loads. We identify four phone calls within about, a, I think, a nine-minute span where when you link those phone call times up with the GPS data that we were able to pull from the concrete truck, you can see that the concrete truck is sitting in the is sitting in the parking lot or sitting in the uh, in the lot where he's where he's getting his load. He's been loaded with concrete, and for some reason, he's calling his manager four times. For what reason we don't know, but he's calling him four times. And as you can imagine, the manager doesn't remember why he would have called him four times. By the way, he also said there's no reason anyone would call me unless there was something wrong with their truck. So he's calling him four times. He says the only way they call is if there's something wrong with the truck. And, and, and he says the way that they really relay that information is through text message. And lo and behold, we don't have any of this stuff. So that's kind of all the background, really the meat of it on how the judge kind of finally came to understand how deep and how, you know, the, the breadth of this issue and what we probably would have been able to give to a jury otherwise. Because the, the judge up until that point had not allowed us to get into in any way, shape, form, or fashion. I couldn't even I couldn't even talk about it in an opening. Kyle couldn't talk about it on any of his cross of their of, of their corporate reps. We couldn't talk about anything that concerned the phone or the lack thereof or the lack of the data or the records or anything like that. She didn't want us to talk about it until 
um, there was a ruling on the motion for spoilation. And once she ruled on it, she said, now you can cross them on it. They had to bring those guys back and gave us that spoilation. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, they, they uh, you know, when you say there's no reason for it, I mean, there is only one reason why you would wipe a cell phone and uh, and then try to destroy it. Uh, and it's because whatever's on that cell phone is worse than whatever the uh, you not knowing or, or not having it uh, is. So, um, so that was a great use of that. It's also really interesting because it's like you sort of think that that whole story with the phone and forgetting about phone calls. When I was reading through the materials y'all sent, I sort of like I thought that was where it was going to end this issue of of them not calling 911. And the idea that it actually went even further than that and went to suggesting that maybe this guy knew there was an issue with his truck before he even leaves that day. You know, then you go from this window of when they left the tread pieces on the on uh, um, the turnpike or the highway or whatever, to the idea that there was stuff related to, to potentially related to what happened before he even gets on the road, but you can't so prove another, it. You can't find out what it was. Another thing that was important in that too is this was the last load of the day on a Friday, so they're going to do some maintenance over the weekend if there if there needed to be maintenance. So I mean, our sort of working theory that we put forth to the jury was he clearly there's a big bolt in the in the tire sylvie's position was they picked up that bolt whatever a mile or two miles before the accident that's what caused the tire to fail and we said there's just no way this we had the physical evidence from the rubber on the tire showing that bolt had been in there for some amount of time clearly was had been in there that day uh he, he's supposed to do a pre-trip inspection every single day before every single trip um and we proved every which way possible including through drone video this guy doesn't do pre-trip inspections um because we had somebody dress up as a telephone repairman is that right and fly a drone over to film to see if he ever did pre-trip inspections he, he, he flew such he flew such a heavy drone that he had to have he had to have clearance from faa and we did it i think over a two or three day period well, so I want to I want to hear about this some more. So talk about this spy mission of uh, getting a guy to go in there with a drone. Uh, go ahead, Kyle. You probably remember this better than I do. But I mean, the, the I'm not sure we we're ever going to get it in. But our idea was we knew through a bunch of testimony that this guy wasn't doing pre-trip inspections. I mean, he was just filling out the paperwork. And, you know, it's supposed to take 15 minutes. And he said it took five. His <laughs> his manager, the same guy who lied on his tapes he's like look uh i always i always check to make sure these drivers are doing the pre-trip inspection but the guy didn't have a cdl and he had no idea how to do one all the other drivers said he never does anything but sit in his office so we called him the ninja inspector because he just clearly ninjas around because nobody's ever seen him actually check to make sure someone's doing their inspection <laughs> so we thought well maybe maybe we'll just fly a drone over their deal and, and film their crew and film this one particular driver see if he does them so this guy dressed up, I think it was a telephone repairman and had like the van and all that stuff parked across the street and just flew a drone over there for a few days to see if their people were doing anything. And, and no one was doing it. No one, not just this guy, no one. So that, it kind of goes, one of the, one of the, I think the funniest stories, at least in the, well, there's a lot, but one funny one in the case is their, their people testified they checked their air pressure by kicking the tire which is sort of 
crazy. Um, but sometimes they said, well, sometimes we use a mallet. Sometimes we kick it. And we just kept saying, how about, a, you know, I don't know, a tire pressure gauge. That seems like a pretty good way to <laughs> check your tire pressure if you're going to do something. So we're at a deposition of the fleet manager's um, or the fleet manager's deposition. And Wes had brought a tire gauge and he'd brought a, those little mallets. Wes is getting a little upset with the guy because he's full of shit. So Wes, Wes puts the tire gauge like just calmly on the table. And then he takes the mallet and puts it calmly on the table. And then he takes his boot off and puts it calmly on the table. He says, which one of these three things do you think is the most accurate to figure out what the tire pressure is? <laughs> was not the first, not the last time Wes was going to take his shoe off in the case because he did it in trial also, which was kind of a hilarious story too. Well, I mean, does it make sense to talk about now? Because I, my, my well, notes, either two or three times a, sh- a shoe was taken off. If we're going to talk about shoes being taken off, we might as well tell the full one. <laughs> <laughs> so Sylvie has their life care planner on the stand who's just full of shit. Um, and, and Wes is doing the cross-examination of him. And the guy on direct said, look, with the right therapies, I've been doing this. I've been doing this for 35 years. And I'm telling you, you know, Miss Brown, she can she can learn to do all kinds of stuff one handed. She can learn to tie her shoe one handed because Shanika was a former model. Uh, fashion was very important to her. And on direct or on her testimony, she talked about how her inability to wear certain type of shoes. She basically wears Velcro shoes all the time. Seems silly to some people. It was really a big deal to her. And fashion was a huge thing. So he was trying to make this point. She can still wear fancy shoes or tie her own shoes. And it was bullshit. So Wes took his shoe off. And the first question on direct was he took his shoe off and handed it to him and said, tie that one-handed, sir. <laughs> and I was like, well, I can't do it. He's like, but you just testified that you've been watching this being taught for 35 years. Yeah. What do you, mean you can't do it. He's like, well, I can't do that. Like, yeah, that's sort of what we thought. Oh, yikes. <laughs> Kind of funny that Wes did with this life care planner is, and you'll have to remind me. Um, so they had a, the defendants had a psychiatrist take the stand who basically said, Shanika's fine emotionally. It sucks to lose an arm after whatever, three months you get over it and it doesn't mentally affect you anymore at all. You just go on with your life, which was silly. But this guy's on the stand and in his report, he talked, in his life care plan, he set out lifetime of psychiatric treatment for this injury. So Wes says, look, right here, you say that she's going to need a lifetime of psychiatric treatment to get over this loss. And he's like, absolutely, she will. I, I agree with that. She definitely needs that. And Wes said, well, would it surprise you to hear that just yesterday somebody testified that she's over this? I mean, from an from a emotional standpoint, she's over it. And the life care planner literally took his glasses off in a state of confusion and looked at Wes and said, well, I'd like to know the credentials of somebody who'd say something like that. And Wes said, yeah, yeah, we all sort of want to know her credentials too. And just, (laughs) but it was fantastic. Just discredited their whole person in one question right before it. Yeah. Well, I thought that was really um, effective in, in the closing, you know, it comes up on this show all the time, credibility, like the number one thing you have to keep the credibility with the jury. And it seems like the theme of your closing was basically all the inconsistencies and lack of credibility that you were able to bring out from the other side. And it seems like out of almost 
everyone, not just with this destroyed call, but with people who were changing testimony with this issue with the life care plan and the the psychiatrist about the treatment um, with their experts. It seems like you like over that course of six weeks or whatever, they all were trying this case. There were really a lot of um, credibility issues on the other side. <laughs> I, th- I think that's a really kind way to say it. Um, <laughs> you know, it. To be honest with you, it was, and, and I think this kind of this brings in a lot of the other defendants too. So we we really I talked about one defendant thus far, Sylvie, but uh, kind of as you pointed out to begin with, there were there were three other major defendants in this case, and one of the things that really hurt everyone's credibility is frankly no one had a cohesive story, and we we purposefully put the defendants in that situation and scenario. We knew that the defendants were pitted against each other in a way that before trial, they wanted to make it sound like kumbaya, we're all together, everything will be fine. But we knew that if you play this out to its logical conclusion, there's no way that you all can be together at at, at any given point during the trial. And you will absolutely have divergent views on what happened and how it happened. And when that occurs, now you've just got everyone cross-firing at each other. We can just step out of the picture and watch everybody shoot themselves to death. And we did a really good job, I think, of doing exactly that, which brings it back to the whole thought of credibility of, of what we pointed out on, on closing. And it wasn't just necessarily even the credibility uh, or the inconsistencies internally within each of their stories, as much as it also was the inconsistencies and the credibility that they had in pitting their story against another defendant's story. I mean, it was really multi-layered when you consider trying to convince a jury about what happened when you've got your own credibility problems, not to mention your credibility problems as it concerns your story, not jiving with the next defendant's story and the next defendant's. And you know, one thing that we did well there was when the defendants started giving such divergent views as we knew they would, that's when I think the pressure points were really hit in each one of those defendants. And they started, you know, we started picking them off at, at, at the number we thought we needed to pick them off at for, for the better for the betterment of our client. Um, but we didn't, you know, we didn't let that shoe drop until it had to. We did everything that we could to keep them in the trial as long as we could because we knew that that judgment day was coming in terms of there will be a moment where you will stand in front of that jury and you're going to say something that is completely opposite of what the other person sitting at your table is. And they kind of, I think, denied themselves that thought like, oh, I think it'll be okay. But we, again, knew it was coming and it did. And when it did... Now you've got your defendants in a situation where they are so far underwater and they've only taken one breath that they are all about to drown if they don't start coming up and getting air. And then we kind of looked at it like somebody's coming up and getting air tomorrow. They're getting out of it, you know, Mm -hmm. and they would settle this person's case and then that person's case. And we did it in a way that I thought was very, very um, kind of well thought out on, on our part in terms of the order, the timing, and kind of everyone together playing one off the other. Yeah, one thing I've noticed in a, in a lot of cases with um, 
you know, my some of my friends on the defense side is they they don't always think about how the evidence rolls out at trial, and they don't always, uh, or it seems to me they don't consider the fact that we're always going to get a first shot, that we're always going to get the, the chance to um, frame the story, and they think their evidence is going to come in a certain way, and it just doesn't, and and sometimes they just don't see uh, how a case is going to roll out at trial. So, um, so I agree with you. Um, one thing that we haven't talked about uh, is is some of the claims against the other defendants. When this case started out, uh, McCarthy Tire Company was still a defendant in the case. And then I understand you settled uh, with them during trial. But talk a little bit about the uh, the uh, history of this tire, this this retread tire uh, in, in the uh, in the uh, case against McCarthy. Um. Kyle, you want to take this real quick? Either one, yes. Have it. Well, I, I think I think Steve. Probably what might help is it, it, it's difficult to just talk about McCarthy. It's easier to talk about kind of the tire in general as to each defendant and, and kind of understand what what the tire and the evidence on it was as to each defendant. So, you know, you've got this enormous tire on a concrete truck that is. That's that, that that's supposed to be weighted up to I want to say fourteen thousand pounds per tire. So I mean it's a huge tire. It's three belts. The tire itself, without a rim, probably weighs you know three hundred and fifty, four hundred pounds, something like that. It's a huge, huge tire, and it's a tire that's meant to obviously go on a cement truck, garbage truck. Uh, and it's a tire more specifically meant to go to work sites on a daily basis. Um, so picking up nails and picking up screws and driving over work sites and picking up anything else at the work site that you think is a work site is you know, what the tire is meant to do. Um, it's not a piece of porcelain. Uh, the defendants wanted it to be a piece of porcelain. They wanted the jury to think that, oh, my goodness, we can't we can't do anything about what's happened to this tire. Um, but even more so on that point is the tire not only is that big and goes over these work sites all the time, but it's also meant to be retreaded. So it can actually wear its entire tread off. And then the design of the tire is meant to then be put into a retreading factory, which is what McCarthy is, and be retreaded. So the tires, so the tires Bridgestone tire. Um, it um, was sold by Bridgestone designed by Bridgestone, manufactured by Bridgestone. The tire was manufactured and sold in 2009 for the first time. In 2011, the tire gets retread by McCarthy. And McCarthy is a retreading plant. But the way that McCarthy works is kind of like the way that a subway works. Let me explain that to you. McCarthy is kind of like the franchisee of the retreaders. Um, Bandag is the franchisor. Bandag happens to be owned by Bridgestone, yet Bandag is a completely different subsidiary. So you got Bridgestone manufacturing and designing the tire, Bandag coming in and creating the retread process creating and making all the retread materials, the rubber, the glues, the, the retreading machines, the presses, and then leasing essentially all of that equipment and material to McCarthy to then retread the tire, kind of like a you know Subway as the franchisor gives all the lettuce and everybody the franchisee and the franchisee puts a sandwich together. That's what McCarthy 
and Bandai working together. So you've got a tire that was, in our opinion, and what I think we've proved to the jury, was defective from the beginning because there was nothing wrong with the tire with the exception of one hole in the middle of the tire that had clearly been made by picking up what we probably believe was a bolt, not a nail, a bolt, uh, some kind of larger screw at a, at a job site. And our thought on that was, well, hell, these tires are supposed to go in places where they would pick these things up. So you're telling me that a tire that's this big picks up a nail or a screw and then it just falls apart? That sounds to me like it's a terrible design. I mean, I, it, you have to design your, your products with knowledge of its intended use and, and, and knowledge of its even knowledge of its intended um, misuse. But this was an intended use. It gets a nail in it, so you get it fixed. There's no reason a nail should make a tire fall apart. So from that standpoint, we believe that it was defective because Bridgestone essentially put this tire out and designed it and said you can go retread it, but made it so weak and the margins on the tire so low that when anything bad or wrong happened to the tire, the damn thing just fell apart. But from the other side of it, though, we've got McCarthy that goes out and retreads the tire pursuant to Bandag's, uh, pursuant to Bandag's process. Where all of that comes into play is we found out through um, the extensive discovery in the case that Bandag, in addition to giving this process and all of these materials to McCarthy, they also trained their employees um, they provide the exact way in which band, excuse me, the exact way in which McCarthy is supposed to retread these tires, the machinery that they're supposed to use, the order that they're supposed to use these machines in, and all that good stuff. So we find out in the case and the discovery that McCarthy, at the time this tire was being made, had been audited by, um, had been, uh, excuse me, Bandag had been audited by McCarthy, and. The audits revealed that the McCarthy plant had a lot of things going wrong with it. The, the, the shearography machines that they're supposed to send these tires through to make sure there's nothing wrong with them before they retread them. That machine wasn't calibrated. It was being used by people who weren't trained on it. Um, we learned that the materials they were using weren't that good. We, the, the, they didn't have any zero certified retreaders that were retreading tires, even though that was what they were supposed to have. The plant had been reduced by Bandag. The McCarthy plant had been reduced to a fail status a couple weeks before this tire was made. Um, we just found out through this, through the cornucopia of evidence that Bandag had kept on McCarthy that their plant was just in disarray because they couldn't get employees, their employees weren't trained, and it all just worked out that, good Lord, the two weeks before this tire was made, the exact way that we believed and our expert opined that this tire would have failed because of a weak, um, because of introducing weakness into the tire through a retread process, that's, that's the problems they were having weeks before that. So... While we've talked about Sylvie and all this, really the whole the whole case was also just to use a word again, kind of a cornucopia of evidence against tire manufacturers. I mean, you got retreaders, designers, manufacturers, um, um, the retreaders that, that created it was just all kinds of tires, tire issues. And you know, we I don't know. I think we took maybe 
50 depositions in the case, plant workers, managers, things like that. Uh, it was just amazing all of the details that we found out about the tire with the knowledge that we had. So that's kind of how they all come together, the different in defendants. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, stay in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh yeah, I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So yeah, so what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is ltsatlanta.com, legal technology services, uh, give them a try. One thing I forgot to mention was that this case was actually tried in Philadelphia, not in New Jersey. Um, but I was wondering, with, with all of these defendants who you had resolved cases with and even started the case with McCarthy, was there um, uh, any type of apportionment arguments by uh, Sylvie or, or even McCarthy when they were in the case? Yeah, I mean, they there, there was. I mean, ultimately, the jury put everything on Sylvie, um, Bridgestone was tough because they settled before the case. So, so Pennsylvania has sort of an interesting law. Um, if if a defendant wants to blame another defendant to apportion liability, they have to put on that evidence themselves, and they cannot do it through cross examination of the plaintiff's experts. So, we had Troy Cobbles as our main tire expert testify, um, and you know he could have bashed. Firestone or Bridgestone relatively hard had they been in it. But the law in Pennsylvania is Sylvie can't cross-examine him to say, to flush out his opinions. You have to hire your own experts to do your own analysis. And ultimately, Wes, you may remember this or the verdict sheet will show it. I can't remember if the, I think the court may have put McCarthy and Firestone actually on the verdict sheet. The jury just put 0% on them. Um, but I can't remember, but the, they just didn't have any evidence. They really couldn't get any out of our expert, and they never designated their own people uh, to bash either McCarthy or Firestone. So the apportionment ended up sort of kind of being a non-issue. Yeah, they did kind of build on that a little bit. I, I recall 
Um, and it's funny that Kyle doesn't remember this because Kyle always argues the, the the charge. But I remember that they with Sylvie at that point the only person when we submitted it to the jury when we were arguing the charge, the only defendant left in the case was Sylvie, and the only plaintiff left in the case was um, um, was the mother. Um, every other um, the other two the minor child and the other plaintiff had been, uh, had settled out totally with all three, four defendants. And um, the mother had settled out with three of the four defendants. And for some reason, that fourth defendant wanted to go ahead and, and, and to take a verdict on it without, um, without settling it, what we believe was a fair number. So they argued they wanted, uh, or they argued for, all of the other defendants to be put onto the jury charge. And I think we had a decent argument for why they shouldn't be, but we looked at it and said, the last thing that we want is to screw this entire, and it was a nine week trial. Last thing we want to do is screw this nine week trial up by not adding on the verdict form, the correct defendants, because I think as everybody knows in trial work, that's the, fastest way back for a retrial and we felt really good with the jury and we felt really good with the evidence really that hadn't come in um as it concerned liability against those other defendants because we were pretty strategic in in settling with those defendants before any serious allegations came out that would kind of ring that bell that you couldn't unring so we felt good about all of that and I remember in closing argument either myself or Kyle we, we split that up um, arguing to the jury, you know, look, th- th- these people are on the form. You saw them in this trial the entire time. They just recently got out. But here's your instruction. Your instruction is you are to decide this case on the evidence that has been presented to you in this case. And I, we singled out a couple parts of the charge of there is no causation evidence as to this defendant. You've heard some bad things about this defendant, but you've heard no evidence as to the causation of it. And you are to decide this based on this evidence, nothing else that you would infer. And I think the jury got it because they put all the liability on um, the concrete company and zeroed out all the other defendants. Um, so related to the evidence that the jury heard, it, it looked like from part of the closing transcript that that, that there was an expert named Le- Lieberman, maybe, that was going to testify but was not able to testify. Um, Ooh, and the reason I'll take this. <laughs> OK, yeah, because the reason I saw it is because I think I think it's you, Wes, but um, you mentioned in the closing that, like, you know, you hear this expert and then you didn't hear anything else from him. Um, but I'm curious as to what actually happened. So Lieberman's a guy that Sylvia hired sort of a purported tire expert. And he had all the qualifications that he had. I remember his PhD from MIT, master's from some whatever Ivy League and, and clearly a smart guy, but didn't know shit about tires. Um, and he was going to testify basically that the bolt that was in the tire had just been picked up within, you know, couple miles of this accident that big bolts would cause the tire to fail Sylvie didn't do anything wrong can't help it bad luck sorry so the way philadelphia or pennsylvania works is like some other states the the defendant puts on their expert does their qualifications and then you get a shot to crack on qualifications and most time you just use it just to get a couple shots in 
and then just say, look, I don't object. He can testify. Um, this guy, I thought I had a shot at maybe getting him off. And I went, so I did my, my Vordar for maybe 45 minutes to an hour that just showed this guy doesn't know anything about tires. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, he didn't know how many belts were in the tire. <laughs> when I asked him, do you know where this failure occurred? He said, yeah, I was over on, uh, what is that, two, 295. <laughs> and, you know, we're just laughing. We're like, this guy has no clue. I'd, I'd gone through his website and shown that, that, you know, the word tire doesn't appear anywhere on his website. We just kept going. In about 45 minutes or an hour in, the judge stops me and says, look, I'm going to let the jury go. And it was a little bit early for lunch. And she said, I'm going to let the jury go for lunch. You can continue. Um, but, you know, off he goes. You know, off the jury goes, we don't need all this in front of the jury. So jury leaves. I go another hour just showing the guy, you know, smart guy, maybe qualified in a lot of things. This isn't his cup of tea at all. I have no idea why they hired him. So I get done. Our we, the, the, the at one point, let me add this in. At one point, Kyle asked him, when they hired you, did you tell them that you had never done a tire case and you don't know anything about tires? And he said, I did. I told him that. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the funny things is that if you've never tried a case in Philadelphia, juries there are very animated and they talk and they, they laugh and they'll talk to each other. They'll talk to you and they'll say stuff. I had a jury on the president of the company, this guy, Keen, a juror, when I asked a question and got kind of a crazy answer and I paused for a second, the juror looked at me and goes, go get him, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> they animated and they talk to you. So what was funny is the jury comes back in and this guy had all the notebooks up at the witness stand, just all the paper and all the notebooks. When the jury gets back from lunch, there's nothing on the stand anymore. It's all cleaned up. And they walked by me and Wes and just looked at us and started laughing. Because they knew exactly what had just happened, that the judge was not going to let this guy testify. And the judge doesn't say anything about it. She just looks at Sylvia and is like, call your next witness, please. (laughs) (laughs) This guy didn't give a single opinion. He got up and he testified, you know, on direct about his qualifications. The jury heard 45 minutes or so of of a cross on him. And then there was probably another hour after that that was more just for the record. And that guy was gone. (laughs) And the jury never heard anything about anything that guy wanted to say the judge ended up writing a really nice order for him to protect him which i thought was kind of a nice thing to do talking about how he's eminently qualified in various you know topics this just isn't one yeah right well it's funny because she also said um i guess defense counsel objected to um, y'all commenting that they never heard anything more from that expert. And she was she basically offered that she could give a curative instruction that they didn't hear more from that expert because they found that he, he wasn't qualified to testify. But she felt like maybe not saying anything about it was the way to go. Yeah. Like I said earlier in this, our, our judge was incredibly experienced and just sharp. I mean, just on top of every issue and well thought out. Um reasoned opinions on everything it was um, really an impressive court um well i wanted to ask you uh so it seemed that a big part of the defense case in this was to blame uh miss reed the driver or the grandmother of of ab and the mother of uh shanika uh for everything that happened 
Um, I, I noticed in opening, they spent a, a lot of time talking about how there was no brake marks, how she oversteered, how, and then at, at some point, uh, I, I noticed a bunch of objections that they, they were trying to, to tell the jury that the state trooper didn't blame the truck driver and maybe uh, had given uh, Miss Reed a ticket. I don't know. But um, talk about how you all address that, that with them, you know, sort of uh, coming so strongly after uh, after Miss Reed. Well, I, so I don't the, the, the state trooper did not blame Miss um, Reed. I'll back up a little bit. In Pennsylvania, the state trooper, no law enforcement are essentially allowed to testify as to fault or causation. It's just not allowed. They can testify to facts. You know, I saw this mark. I saw that mark. Um, I saw this piece of evidence here, that tire there. I saw this hole in that or whatnot, but they're not allowed to say, I put all of it together and I found that she was going this fast, uh, made these turns and these degrees or whatnot. Um, so with that, with that being kind of the basis or the underlying thought there, uh, the, the, the trooper in his report, if you look at it on just face value, he says that she overcorrected. Um, and in all honesty, there's nothing incorrect about that statement. She did overcorrect. Um, because had she corrected perfectly, then she would not have lost control of her vehicle. But just like any other vehicle, I mean, every vehicle has its limit, its steer limit, um, and every driver has their limit of what they can do. Um, and when you ask the police officer, do you blame her for doing what she did? His answer is no. Yeah, I mean, she overcorrected, but I think everyone would have overcorrected. And we used, we used that testimony to really drive home what we wanted to do from the beginning of the case, which was get an emergency instruction from the court as it concerned her actions. So in Pennsylvania, as is in a lot of other states, the, the emergency doctrine rule is if you come upon um, some type of scenario or situation and it's an emergency and you react to it and your reaction is reasonable under the given circumstances as everyone else would have acted, yet there's still an accident that naturally follows, it's not your fault if it was an emergent situation. And that generally requires that through no fault of your own, you were put into a situation, you reacted um, the way that anyone else would have reacted, and then there was nothing you could have done to have mitigated it otherwise. And that's essentially what we had, right? I mean, anybody else that comes, I mean, we had already proven that four other cars had hit this, had hit this uh, tread. We had testimony from three of those people who said when they hit the tread, they honest to God thought their car was going to turn over because the tread was so big. Again, it's a 300-pound piece of rubber that stood off of the pavement almost three feet. So if you think about, if you can think about driving on the highway, watching someone in front of you swerve, and then seeing a three-foot piece of rubber that weighs 300 pounds and is, you know, I think nine foot long or whatever it was, sitting in the middle of the road, you have one of two options. Hit it or dodge it. And everyone else before her hit it because of varying different thoughts we had. Maybe they 
didn't see it until too late. Maybe, maybe it was uncovered uh, or, or, or it came in their vision a lot faster than anyone else's because of the driver in front of whatever it may have been. They decided that they were going to have to run over it as opposed to miss it. Our clients decided they didn't want to overrun it. Our clients decided that they wanted to try to miss it because she thought if I run over it, it's I'm, I'm, it's like running into a brick wall. Mm-hmm. So there, again, we went back to the to the testimony on the other on on the other people that hit it, and a couple of them said that it was so big they thought that their that their vehicle was going to flip. So that that gave us the thought of reasonableness of. Well, you didn't want to hit it. You wanted to try to avoid it. And that's what she did. She tried to avoid it. And then again, when you go back to the cop, he says, yeah, she tried to avoid it. And in all honesty, I think most people that would try to avoid it, you know, unless you're Mario Andretti, is probably right. going to, is probably going to put themselves in a situation where more, you know, more likely than not that you're going to lose control of your vehicle. And that also comes down to the thought of the dynamics of the vehicle and what your oversteer and understeer can handle and all that good stuff. But when you just put it down in the general terms of you're driving doing 55 miles an hour and it's bumper to bumper traffic and you're trying to get somewhere on a Friday afternoon and all of a sudden a three foot piece of 300 pound tread comes up in front of you. If you miss it and then roll your car over, is it really your fault that you rolled your car over? It sounds to me like it's more the fault that someone threw it out there. Um, And, and we kind of and we brought that kind of even more to the forefront by saying, you know, what if what if Sylvie's driving down the road and they start throwing out 400 pound sacks of corn in, in the middle of the road? I mean, do you expect everybody to start running over or you, or you expect them to dodge it? And we even got into their to their documents where they had told their drivers to make just absolute certain that they, you know, basically hermetically sealed all of their equipment to their vehicle because if they didn't, this is in their in their policies, if they didn't make sure that all their equipment was secured to their vehicle, then stuff falls off your trucks. And if things fall off your trucks, dangerous accidents happen. And that's exactly what happened here. So that's kind of how we got around what their defense was of putting all of the liability on her. And I think everyone, I think everyone got it in the end. I, Kyle, did they put ten percent on, or is that what they did? No, I, thought it was, I thought it was zero, if I remember. Um, it was zero. Yeah. One thing I think we did to sort of really highlight how big this tread was is we put it on count on a different council table in the courtroom, where the jury had to walk by it every time they left the jury box to go out of the courtroom. Somehow the defendants never objected to it, literally until closing. And by that time, the judge was like, it's been there nine weeks, guys. I'm not moving it now. So this thing, I mean, it's enormous. And we would, anytime we had to do anything with it, we would purposely struggle as if we were trying to, I mean, just as if we were basically handicapped. And we, it, 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 it was a beast to move because it's got all the steel wires coming out and just going to slice your hands up. But we would sort of hype up how big it was to move. It didn't matter. The jury could touch it every single day. They'd walk by it just to show how ginormous the thing was laying on a road because pictures just don't really do it. You got to see it. And it, they got to see it for nine straight weeks. Right. Right. Well, um, I, I wanted to ask one other thing that Wes, when I was reading the opening, um, you were going through your slides and apparently the opposing counsel didn't like something that was written on the top of your slide. So I just had to ask you, what was, 
written on your slides that the opposing counsel didn't like so much? I think the words tire jockey. <laughs> and and I know that it, it probably sounds like I made that up. The fact of the matter is, is that I didn't. <laughs> so we found out through discovery, and obviously the, ju- the jury found it, the jury heard about it, that the way McCarthy retread tires or way they got their business was kind of twofold. One, they would have an account with, uh, with uh, businesses that pick up their tires that needed retreading and they would retread them and then and retread them for an amount of money and then give the tires back to that business. That was one way. The other way is, is that the businesses that, that use their tires up would just then sell their tires to just random businesses that went out and bought old tires. And then these random businesses that went out and bought old tires would then go to a used tire market and sell all these tires on the used tire market. The person that would buy these tires on the used tire market is, guess what? A tire jockey. (laughs) So the tire jockey would go and put together like a portfolio of tires whether they be really good tires that have nothing wrong with them all the way down to tires that have a whole bunch wrong with them that a lot of work needs to be done. And then they would sell, they bundle all these tires together and sell them as a whole to someone like McCarthy. And McCarthy would take those tires to use for the carcasses. So they would they, they would grind all the remaining tread down on those carcasses and fill in all the holes and whatnot and then add tread to them. And then after they did that, sell those tires as essentially refurbished or close to new tires that had been retread. So the tire jockeys are the ones that would go out and get the tires and then sell them. And then next thing you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. And the whole thought that we had on it and that we told the jury and that they didn't like was this tire that failed was at one point someone's trash because it was not a tire that was taken from McCarthy, excuse me, it was not a tire that was taken from Sylvie and retread and then given back to Sylvie. Sylvie bought it from McCarthy. And that means that it was owned originally by a company we do not know or have the identity of. So hence it was another person's trash. And so that slide was either it was trash or a tire jockey bought trash or something like that. Yeah. They didn't like it, but the fact matter is, is it was true. <laughs> yeah. If you if you read the opening. What I thought a tire jockey did was go to du- go to tire dumpsters around town, <laughs> buy buy giant uh, like loads of trash, <laughs> and then pick through the trash and sell it to other people. That's what I thought a tire jockey did. So I did a really good job. Then is what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> um. I wanted to ask. This is kind of a little bit different topic, but um, I meant to bring it up when we were talking about the other experts that y'all got to sort of implode on the stand. Um, but one of the moments that I have to think was pretty satisfying is I guess it was a defense vocational expert who um, I guess was trying to say that Shanika would have the same job opportunities despite only having one arm and you were able to um, really make her look pretty bad. It sounds like by, by asking her whether she agreed with something she had said many other times in other reports about. Yeah. So this life care or a vocational expert 
Wait, and, Kyle, before you say this, let, 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 me, let me say this. Kyle, tell the story, please. I will, I will, I will. Kyle crossed her. And it was such a good cross. The week after trial ended, she sent every single one of the attorneys she had worked for a letter that said, I'm officially retired. The the cross ended her career. Go ahead, Kyle. She, so one thing Sylvie did, I thought was really intelligent was, you know, our clients are African-American. We know we're in Philadelphia. Our jury is going to be probably a majority African-American. And they hired this well-educated, well-credentialed African-American vocation. She had testified primarily on behalf of plaintiffs in the past. So in her reports, she always had this issue about the ADA. So she said, look, um, in the report that we get from, for, for Ms. Brown, it says, you know, she has this handicap, but, but, but companies are required by law to give her accommodations, reasonable accommodations. So she's really not going to lose any money because the ADA protects her. So, so no worries about this at all. Well, we went and found a ton of old reports because she did plaintiff's work and they weren't that hard to find. And that she copied and pasted that exact same paragraph. You know, the ADA protects her. We're going to be fine. But in everyone for the plaintiff, there's a next paragraph that says, in reality, the ADA is a bunch of bullshit. It doesn't work at all. It just doesn't provide any protection for people. It's not going to help this woman, which was utterly insane. So it was really easy to go through a bunch of to show Shanika's and then just keep putting ones up with the next paragraph and keep asking, where is that paragraph in Shanika's? I don't see that paragraph. But then where it got even crazier is you start looking back through some of these reports and some of her opinions. There was a lady smoking at dinner with her husband. She went out to smoke a cigarette, slipped on some ice and hurt her back. Wasn't that bad. She went back inside, finished dessert, had some coffee, went back home. And then there was some treatment thereafter, and she opined that that lady could never work again. There's a couple other ones that weren't quite as dramatic as that, but every time she kept saying that person cannot work at all, completely unemployable. And for Shanika, she said absolutely no loss of loss of earning. And the dichotomy of that was crazy. So I went through all those kind of painstakingly slow. And and every time I'd go back and sit next to Shanika, who is sort of just inside the well, and sit next to her and, and, and look at her arm and said, but no loss, no loss of uh, earnings for her. And she just kind of kept sticking with it. So then the other thing she said was, Shanika is available for all, every sedentary job there is. If there's a sedentary job, 100% she can do it. So one of the interesting sedentary jobs is court reporters. So the court reporter is sitting right next to Shanika. And I, I said, kind of lead her through that. I was like, you know, so one of the things that sedentary is a court reporter. And she said, Yep, the court reporter said, Terry, and I walk up and I'm within a foot of Shanika, I mean, of the witness and the court reporter. And I said, so, so you think Shanika can do what this woman right here is doing right now? And she just kind of had to sit there and look at it. She goes, well, I don't know. Does that lady have foot pedals? And I was like, take a look. She doesn't have foot pedals. No, Shanika couldn't do that one. So I was like, so your report's wrong. It's just wrong all over the place. You omit huge swaths of stuff. And also randomly, there was this one paragraph that was in a report that just was written weird. So I typed the words into the internet. And I found a website that she just copied and pasted it from. So she had plagiarized it. So we had a little discussion about plagiarism that she didn't much enjoy. And she testified, I did not plagiarize that. I never did. And I had it up and I had the copyright date on it. I was like, yes, you did. 
you straight stole it off the internet. Um, wow. We, we beat that idea up pretty, pretty bad. And the truth is, a lot of help came from our vote rehab. Uh, it was a lady named Terry Mendelson who really did not like this other lady. Um, <laughs> she was very useful for me and did it all for free because she just really didn't like her and thought she was a, a shamster. Um, so she, she did a lot, a lot of the legwork for me, which is really nice of her. She did a fantastic job. It's amazing what you can find in the details of that. I mean, I think, I think we literally just, we just took a couple, like the first sentence or two of each of our paragraphs when we do all with all the experts, typed it in Google and find out if it's plagiarized. We do it all the time because it's something that you can really, really mess with somebody on. And lo and behold, man, Google is great. <laughs> man. I don't think I've ever, I've, I've, I don't think I've ever done it. And now like, now I know what I'm doing, like the rest of today, <laughs> tomorrow. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, you, I mean, cause, cause you can lead someone into saying like, this is just all their opinion. And next thing you know, it's like, well, I mean, when I say all my opinion, I mean, it's, it's, I just cut and paste it off of Google. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and they know, you know, I have a $35,000 charge too for cutting and pasting off Google. Right. No. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, digital law marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. So I, I want to uh, make sure that you guys talk a little bit about damages. I mean, obviously, this was a uh, uh, a terrible injury to Shanika and to uh, her daughter. But talk about how you approached damages, how you got the jury uh, to where they got for the verdict. Um, well, I can tell you this. The the verdict was um, just under $11 million. And to be completely honest, 
um, we were very dissatisfied with that verdict itself out of out of the out of the jury. Um, we were down to one client, one defendant. Um, I could tell you that the case overall settlement was many, many multiples of that. Um, and we were very kind of dissatisfied. I was certainly dissatisfied in myself with that. However, after that was after that verdict um, came back to us, um, they gave a the, the jury gave a finding of punitives or in in Pennsylvania, it's just the conduct has to be outrageous. And they, and they found they found the conduct is outrageous. So the judge gave us two or three days to do discovery on assets from the defendant. And then the day that we were to begin um, uh, cross-examination on assets and, and just general um, evidence on assets, the, the case settled. But I'm, I'm saying that because after it was over with, after the case was settled and done, as we do with every one of our cases, we had our jury consultant go back and, and when, uh, when I say every one of our cases, when it's allowed, we have our jury consultant go back and pull the jury and find out what they thought, what they liked, what they didn't like. You know, I mean, literally everything from is my beard too big, too small is like just anything. I want to know every single thing the jury can tell us about our case. And we found out that for some unknown reason, the jury convinced themselves that um, that if they found outrageous, that that is where they would give the amount of money for pain and suffering oh. and non-economic damages. And they believe that their first job was to pay for the life was to give the life care plan, which was almost right on $11 million. And then they would come back and give the pain and suffering. And, and I think of, of every single juror that was polled that way, that's what they said. And they even said, we were so upset that we weren't given an opportunity to do that. And of course it just, you know, it crushed us for our clients um, I think at that point, you know, they've been well taken care of. But just generally speaking, after it was over with, it was kind of a crushing blow. And our jury consultant went back and looked at it and said, listen, there was you, you explained it the right way. There was nothing you could have done differently. And we know this. The juries just do weird things sometimes. It's why I think all of us agree that the last thing you want to do, if you can avoid it, is to put is to put your client's fate in the hands of jurors, no matter how great you think they are, because Sometimes weird things happen and you can't explain it. Um, and that's kind of what happened with that. So going back to the damages, Kyle's, Kyle's a lot better at explaining that. Um, he took a lot of the damage witnesses in the case, but, but that was kind of the, the end result outcome. Yeah, I think, in it, you know, for, for the minor, AB, um, I mean, look, that was not difficult to show what she's going through. But I think probably, and obviously she wasn't on the jury verdict, but I still think it's an interesting story. One of the things we did that was super useful and successful is we brought in her treating physician, uh, who was a relatively young, uh, attractive female and just credentialed. She, I remember it's Harvard Medical School, I'm pretty sure Northwestern undergrad, all the right stuff. I mean, she just had all the credentials, was compassionate, caring, had all, I mean, just fantastic testimony. And one thing Wes and I really debated was whether or not to have 
because we we didn't have the minor in the courtroom. We, we had her in there for opening, and that was it. And and was to have her come back and have this doctor show how the prosthetic leg works, how you take it on and off. I didn't want to make. I mean, she's three at the time. We don't want to make her, a, whatever, a prop. But also thought it was kind of important, so we ultimately did it. So she goes and sits down right in front of the jury, and the minor is sweet and bubbly and lovable and full of energy as you could get. She's just adorable. This uh, physician comes down and takes her leg off, and he shows the the jury kind of how it works, and then proceeds to try to put it on, but she doesn't have this little tool that you need to reach down and grab the strap. And the mom didn't bring it because they weren't anticipating. She, the mom just didn't know, you know, every plan we were having. So it took, what, Wes, 15 minutes? I would say easily 15 minutes. And it was without doubt the single most sobering, awkward 15 minutes that my life has ever gone through. I've never been comfortable in trial. I, I'm looking yeah. at the judge thinking, does she think I'm doing this as some sort of game is she going to get mad and then you know a lot of times in trial something's not kind of going right you're like ah, we'll come back to that after a break i can't do that I mean, this little girl doesn't have a leg on i, I can't just say ah screw it get back on the stand and we'll take care of this right. later i'm like you you need to fix this <laughs> like i i don't know what to do here it is how looked over at me a couple times with kind of a look on his face like terror what the hell do I do right now? And I, and I just remember thinking, like, I know this has to be so awkward for you up there because he's in the moment. And it's hard to kind of have that step back away from yourself to see what's going on with everybody else in the courtroom. But from my perspective, as awkward as it was, it was still gold because it was showing the jury how affected these people's lives were. But Kyle was in the moment going, oh, my God, is this too much? Is this too much? And I just kept looking at him going, you're good. Good, good. Let it go. Just don't say a word. And he didn't for 15 minutes while she tried to put that leg on. Not a word was said. And the jury's eyes never left her leg. And the, the doctor and this little girl are, are having, I mean, they're talking. I, it's, there's no way it's on the record. They're sort of whispering. And, you know, the doctor's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I can't get this. And the little girl's like, my hand's smaller. Do you want me to reach and see if I can grab it? And they're, you know, it's all sweet. But I am freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> so she she finally gets it on and the, and the doctor goes back up on the stand and Wes and I always write each other notes during trial if you can for like a question idea and while this is all happening she he slides a note over and I was like yeah, that's a good question so she gets on the stand I said look I can't help but notice doctor you have two arms I suspect this is extraordinarily difficult for Shanika with one helping her daughter get her leg on and she just looked at it and said sometimes I just don't know how she does it and it was just you're just kind of like, I don't think I could ask you another question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's it. Yeah. yeah, that's powerful. And, you know, another another one that we had for Shanika I thought was really neat was a prosthetist came in and we had him sort of on standby. We never thought we were going to call him. He was just going to explain the different type of prosthetics that are available for Shanika. And it turned into this really cool show and tell where he had them all and he had like the, you know, the electric ones that, and explain how they go into the nerves and how her body would actually control them. And the jury got to pass all these different prosthetics around, which I thought was really cool and, and gave some background to how expensive these are and why it's important for her to have something like that. I mean, they are really expensive and have to be replaced often, but it's life-changing kind of stuff for her. I, I can tell you for, for um, the minor, 
I, I'm unaware of any other cases where you've had a child as small as we had. She was six months old when the accident occurred and her leg is completely severed um, um, above her knee. And I mean, it, it's a miracle she made it in all honesty. I mean, it, 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 I, I digress a bit, but one of the, one of the uh, um, um, scene witnesses, one of the people who were there at the scene saw her in the car, grabbed her by her leg, pulled her out, got in the bed of another man's truck, and they went the wrong way up a road, up a ramp, while he was holding on to her leg, trying to um, trying to put, apply a tourniquet with his own belt, got to the hospital. The hospital's front door was locked, and he's banging on the hospital, holding the child up without a leg and blood all over him. And they rush out and they get him. And they send the child. The minor probably wouldn't have made it had it been another thirty or forty-five seconds. Literally, is that? And he said he said she had no movement in her. Her eyes were literally gone. That it's just amazing that she made it. Um, wow. And 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 her being that young, you know, when we first got the case, we're very familiar with with uh, amputation cases prosthetics and we've got great experts and whatnot but you know it's a whole other animal trying to figure out what kind of prosthetics and treatment that a six-month-old little girl is going to need when this when this occurs so i mean we went out and got pediatric surgeons pediatric doctors i mean i, I bet we had five or six pediatric specialties that we consulted with and they wrote reports so that we could then work with a prosthetician to get a kind of an understanding of what type of prosthetics that she would need. Cause it's not, you know, if, if someone's her mother, for instance, her mother has her arm gone and then it's a matter of, does she need a revision surgery at some point to remove some skin maybe a bone graft to do something. And then you have prosthetics and the prosthetics is just a matter of which one you want to choose. Totally different with her, with, with the minor. I mean, her legs going to grow. Is her growth plate going to hit a certain way? Is it not? When, when, if it doesn't, what type of robotics can she use? What kind of knee articulations can she use? I mean, we, there was a gambit of things that there's no way you could look at it and determine what she was going to need with you know complete specificity at that young of age you just don't know what's going to happen so it runs a gambit and you look at it and go her life care her life care plan can literally range from just amazing uh, you know an amazing number really high to still an amazing number really low but 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 the, the, the vast difference between the two is unbelievable because of the because of the complications made by the fact that she's just basically an infant Right. Um, well, uh, I, this has been just a great interview and I, and we've taken a lot of your time, so I really appreciate it. Before we let you go, I want to make sure, is there anything else that you want to make sure that our listeners have heard about this case that we haven't had a chance to talk about? I'm sure Wes does too, but I, I got to tell you the last question that was asked in a, in a nine week trial, which is probably going to make me laugh for the rest of my life. So their last witness was their accident reconstruction expert. And he was basically coming in against say grandmother shouldn't have crashed was kind of the position. So they put him on and, and we do our cross-examination of him. And part of the deal is I was saying, look, you've testified for Sylvie a bunch of times. I mean, you're kind of their go-to guy so much so that we had a document where the 
employees at Sylvie called him the day of the accident or day after the accident. So before the lawyers even got involved, they're like, I got to call up a recon guy. So on redirect, Sylvie's attorneys said, yeah, yeah, look, it's true that you've testified on behalf of Sylvie a number of times. They said, yeah. He goes, but isn't it true also that you've testified against Sylvie? I mean, you're not beholden to Sylvie. Other people have retained you in cases against Sylvie. He's like, well, that's definitely true. So I do one quick recross and I said, what I just heard you say is you've testified on behalf of Sylvie a lot of times. He's like, yep. And you've testified against Sylvie a lot of times. He said, yeah. I said, man, it sounds like Sylvie causes a lot of accidents. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> the funny in the trial, I thought. <laughs> Just kind of had to sit there and look at me for a little bit. <laughs> That's so pretty good. The only other thing I'd add is on that their their uh, their trucking expert. <laughs> speaking of a lot of accidents, their trucking expert when he's on the stand, Kyle's cross or he's he's being directed on the stand. Kyle's going to cross him. I'm sitting at counsel's table, and I decide that. I need to Google his name just to see if there's anything I've missed. And I Google his name and it is a freaking gold mine. We find he's got a website that we link him to that is a truck driving school. But in addition to that, he offers his services as an expert. And the services as an expert link, when you hit it, it's got a truck that's burst through flames and is like, it's a video of a truck bursting through flames and riding with flames coming out from under it. And then it has all of these like bullet points that come down of what he does. And one of like the five things that he does in his uh, trucking defense expert school is he teaches lawyers how to handle extreme blunder. And it was just amazing to me that he put on his website that one of the things that you got to know if you're going to successfully defend a case is how to handle extreme blunder. So, of course, one of the questions was, well, I think Kyle, when he began the cross on the guy, we started with the video. Literally, we said, I want you to watch this video and I'm going to ask you some questions. And the first thing out of kind of our side from him was this flaming truck bursting through it like it was in a damn carnival. And then Kyle kind of ended it with so extreme blunder, kind of like what we've got here, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's great. Also, side note, a great band name, I think. I've got got dibs on extreme blunder for my band name. Yeah, nice. I like that. Well, uh, well, listen, guys, I really want to thank you for your time. Uh, I want to remind everybody that we've been talking to uh, Kyle Farah and Wes Ball uh, from Caster Lynch Farah and Ball uh, out of Houston, Texas. And you can look them up at uh, fbtrial.com or the tirelawyer.com. And we have been talking about Brown versus Sylvie Concrete Products. And the verdict in that case was $10.6 million on behalf of Shanika Brown. Uh, Guys, thank you so much for your time. This has been uh, just a a great talk. Yeah, it's been fun, guys. Hey, yeah, thanks for having us. We really appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com.
We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us please email us at info at great trials podcast.com Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She...